Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Greetings from Las Vegas. I am LaShonda, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, family. And all of a sudden, I have forgot how to breathe. <laughs> okay, no pressure, right? No judgment, just friends and family here. Today, I have one day, 10 months, and two years of sobriety. Right. And the one day is most important because that one day determines whether or not to get months. And those months then become years. And I'm so thankful that I get to spend that one day with you all at the 33rd River Roundup. How awesome is that? So when I got the call asking if I would be a speaker, I was absolutely elated. And I said yes without hesitation. And it was almost like I had won the Grammys. Not that I've ever been nominated for a Grammy, but I understood the feeling. As such, I have a few people that I would like to thank. (laughs) just kidding I make corny jokes and I'm nervous but I do want to thank everyone who participated in their own recovery by attending this roundup all of those who put their energy and their time and their talents and treasures into um, pulling this auspicious event off for us. Uh, the staff here, the people who travel from all around the country. I think we even have people here from Canada. My friends and family that came to support me from Vegas. Thank you all so much. So I couldn't decide if I was nervous because the meeting is so large or if because my children were here listening to their mom give their first AA talk. So devil shot of nerves here. My wonderful children have came to support me. I'm so proud and honored to be their mom. And they get to again hear me give my first AA talk, which I'm sure will make for a very interesting ride home. (laughs) Very interesting. So for me, what alcoholism was like didn't manifest until very later on in life. But the tendencies, the behavior was always there, even though I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't have the vocabulary to describe exactly what it was that I was feeling. Um, I grew up uh, middle class America in Chicago, grew up on the lakefront overlooking this, the beautiful lakefront, um, overlooking the park where the mayor's office was. My childhood was kind of like the Jeffersons. Uh, There was a bellman. There was a tennis court on the roof. There was a spa. There was a concierge. um, There was a fitness court. And my life was picture perfect. Uh, My mom was um, an executive for Playboy, uh, their international division. So she traveled. She was very well spoken, very well educated. My father was the number one salesman for a carpet conglomerate in Chicago. I went to private school and my life was beautiful. And at 10, We had a family meeting and they told me that my mom had died and my mom's name was Marion. So I kind of refer to these periods of my life as a.m. and p.m. So 
pre-marrying, my life was absolutely beautiful. My father drove me to school every day. He took my grandmother a six-pack of Coca-Cola every morning with the newspaper. He took my grandfather a six-pack of Old E, <laughs> Bud Light in the newspaper, and he picked me up from school. We went to church together. We, we did family things, and my life was beautiful. And then that devastating moment happened, which is AM, after Miriam. My mother died in December, and in June, my father had remarried. So I didn't have a chance to grieve or even understand as a 10-year-old girl that my mom was gone and that my life was forever changed. And my mom was a woman that was very prim and proper, and we didn't curse, and we didn't spit, and we didn't chew gum, and we didn't wear short skirts, and we didn't color our hair, and we didn't wear red fingernail polish, and there was a lot of things to becoming a poised young woman. My stepmother, however, was the complete opposite. You know, she had the, the skunk hair stripe down the middle, long red fingernails, never worked a job, didn't really believe in education. Her kids used to fight each other a lot, and I felt like a sheep thrown into the lion's den. I was so displaced and so unsettled and so sad, just this extreme sadness that I couldn't enunciate. And unfortunately, I grew up in one of those families where what happens in this house stays in this house. There was no thought of therapy or grief counseling. It was just everybody just grin and bear it. And so I never really had a good, healthy, emotional place to pull from. And being in this blended family, I never felt connected to them. I always felt different. Where I wanted to excel in school, they wanted to figure out how to ditch school. Where I wanted to do extracurricular activities, they wanted to hang out and party and get tattoos on the back porch. So I, I didn't really quite fit in. The fighting and the cursing and the gambling and the loud music, I was shell-shocked in my own home. And so this thrust me into excelling at school. I signed up for every extracurricular activity possible because I did not want to be there. But there was no other place to be. So thankfully, I did do very well in school. Uh, when I got to high school, I became battalion commander my second year of ROTC, which was like a, a, a record in Chicago because, number one, we didn't have female battalion commanders. Number two, we didn't have any as young as I was. I got a job after school. I got scholarships, you know, um, offers to go to college very early. And I began working at the age 14. And the reason why this is paramount for me is because it helped to not only set up my work ethic, but it really showed me what I was capable of at a very, very, very young age. Also, there was my high school counselor, and he was the one person that showed any interest in my quality of life. You're not supposed to get a work permit until you're 15, but he smudged my birthday just a bit so that I can get that work permit at the age of 14 because he understood how desperate my situation was at home. So while I am going to school and I'm excelling and I'm a star pupil, at night I'm living in a battlefield. I would open my refrigerator and there would be no food there, just jars of water. I would open the pantry and bugs would run out. And I felt hopeless. Again, I'm in Chicago. There is horrible weather in Chicago. But rain, sleet, or snow, I made it to school. And there came a time where I just couldn't take being hungry, not another night. 
And so I went to a local grocery store and I put rubber bands around the bottom of my pants leg and I came out like the, the Michelin man with hot dogs and rice and bags of beans all stuffed down my pants leg. And here I was, thought I was being smart and slick. I know that they knew that I was stealing, but they were gracious enough to not stop me. But this set something off of me because the next time I went and stole something, I stole a Nike Trapper Keeper. So that wasn't survival. That was because now it's like, oh, I can get away with this. And I see the other kids have these things and I want these things. So now I'm going to just start taking them. And so that, that inclination, that excitement to steal, it, it set something off in me. It wasn't that I was taught that. My family owned three churches in Chicago and our ministers and railroad workers and postal workers and authors and singers and you know, do missionary work and go and evangelize at the prison. So I didn't have an example of this. So where did the thought come from? Initially it was desperation, but the stuff that I wanted, where did that thought come from? I don't know. So now I'm living this duplicitous lifestyle. By day, I'm the epitome of a student, and by night, I'm turning into a little criminal. And so my criminal escapades quickly, they quickly escalated. They quickly escalated. So now dealing with the grief and loss and sadness for my mother, did that create some emotional disorder? I'm sure. So let's go ahead and check that box. Did my father fall into a bottle and never come out? Absolutely. So let's go ahead and check that box. That I did learn that my father's father was an alcoholic and my father's father's father was also an alcoholic, making me a fourth generation alcoholic. Yeah, let's go ahead and check that box. Now, I have a sister. We grew up nine years apart. She went to the army. She never drank. She never smoked. She never got in trouble. Exact same set of circumstances. So what am I to blame for my alcoholism? And what I'm coming to learn is why I became an alcoholic or how I became an alcoholic is really not all that important because we've all traveled different roads to get here. But the point is we're here. So now what I do with it now that I'm here, I went through a bunch of geographicals and a bunch of relationships and a bunch of jobs, never understanding why the players would not just perform in a practical way to suit me. I just could not understand that concept. I mean, I'm a good person. I do what I'm told most of the time, but life just never really seemed to work out. So as I mentioned in high school, I did get two scholarship offers, full rides, books, room, tuition, spending money even. But because I didn't have the foundation or the support necessary to keep me level-headed enough to accept those opportunities. And because of that nightlife that I was living, I got pregnant my senior year of high school. And I didn't have not one person in my life to tell me that I can go to school with the baby. And so I declined those scholarship offers and I proceeded to be a single mom. I was terrified to raise my young boy child in Chicago. Um, it has earned the name Chirac. It absolutely has. Um, in high school, we, um, I'm sure most of you all have seen that movie, Lean On Me. That's what my high school was like. We had to go through metal detectors. People were stabbed. They were beaten. They were shot. Our teachers cursed us. They hated coming to school. We all did. And it was just something you had to survive. And once I survived high school, I thought the drive for success would be on. 
I would go into the world. I would find my own way. My family didn't take care of me, so I'm going to leave them in Chicago where they are. And I began my geographicals. I have lived in seven states, um, <laughs> seven states, multiple cities in each state, just thinking that if I could situationally improve my life, that I would be okay. I had never taken a look at the fact that alcohol has always played a major part in my demise. So it started off in high school, like lots of us, with the occasional drink, the occasional sneaking out of daddy's flask, um, the occasional uh, beer party, and things of that nature. I never looked at it to be an issue. When I moved to Virginia, I lived in a military town. My sisters, I stayed, it was in the military, and I lived on the base with her. I started a very lucrative business, and all of her friends were, you know, Army or Navy. And so we would have these parties at our house almost every weekend, and we played drinking games. I never looked at the fact that I can outdrink all of the sailors there. I would be the one to collect everybody's keys at the end of the night, and I always took one of everybody's shoe because that way they had to come and wake me before they left. And I can do a sobriety check to make sure everybody was safe to get home. But again, I'm the one that closed down the party every single time. But then it was fun. There were no problems. So I didn't look at my drinking then. Fast forward, I had an aunt to pass away and I had to drive to Arkansas, which I did so long. And coming back. My uncle thought it would be a good parting gift to give me this huge ceramic cat filled with non-habit forming marijuana. So on my exit, coming off the freeway, on my exit home, I hydroplane and my car goes into a ditch. And lucky me, the car behind me was the state troopers. The ceramic cat had broken, and there was weed all over my car. Like, yay, aren't I lucky? And so I was ordered to go to a program, and that was the first time I realized that I could not function normally without some substance to make me feel better. Because it was so socially accepted, I didn't think that it was a problem. But when I realized that I had to substitute one for the other, one being illegal and one being legal, I didn't really think that that was a problem. I can go into the grocery store and buy as much vodka as I want and nobody will question me. So that's when it really took flight. And I was able to drink and drink and drink. And as long as I took care of my baby, what difference did it make? And so I married a sailor and that was fun because then I could really drink like a lady, right? <laughs> and so quickly, and because at this point I'm only 21 years old, I don't really know the, the institution of marriage. I didn't know that he was really expecting me to, to be a wife and take care of all those wifely duties. I thought it was an arrangement. Like, we're friends, you need somebody to take care of you while you're out to seas, you're gonna give me housing, okay, great. But when he realized that I hadn't been performing my wifely duties, a.k.a. be faithful, <laughs> he beat me badly. He beat me badly. He blackened both of my eyes and 
he made me perform this sick ritual with him uh, where I had to put on my wedding dress and he opened up a Bible on a, a desk that we had and sat this crystal cross and he made me recite my vows to him. And he abused me many times that night. And I laid there until it was time for to leave in the morning. And I grabbed my baby and two black garbage bags and jumped on a Greyhound bus, destination unknown. So that landed me in the next city with the next him. But surprise, I was there too. And so the same cycle began again. Get a job, get a man, work hard, take care of your baby, and life will be okay. One day you'll have your lucky break. Just keep going. One day you'll have your lucky break. Meanwhile, I'm drinking every single night. But because I can get up in the morning and go to work, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. So that series of geographicals eventually led me to Viva Las Vegas. Right? And so I come out here with high hopes. I'm engaged again, again, and we were going to have a new life here. Um, I left a beautiful home in Virginia Beach. Um, I left a very comfortable business that I had created for myself, and I took a chance and came to Las Vegas so that my then fiance could go to the famous Le Cordon Bleu. We got here in August, excuse me, we got here in July. And by December, all of those hopes and dreams were gone. And so was my savings account. And so I did what I know how to do. I hustled out and got a job. And I found another him, him being my supervisor at work. And he was such a debonair gentleman, very, very respectful and wore suits and drove a nice drop top. And I was just, <laughs> I was smitten. <laughs> I was smitten. And we dated very casually, and it was a beautiful budding romance. And then the ex, who's now gotten into things that people get into in Vegas, is stalking me. These two have a confrontation, a fight erupted, and we all go to jail. And this is within five months of me being in Las Vegas. I don't even know that I have a Nevada ID yet. And I'm in jail. And I am so confused as to what happened to my life so quickly. But again, never looking at how alcohol had played a part in that whole situation. I wonder if we were not all intoxicated, had we not had a brawl in the middle of the courtyard in our Friday night best? I don't think so. But that's what happened. And so while I'm in jail, I get the, again, surprise that I'm pregnant. Whoa was right. And so I later find out that not only am I pregnant, I'm pregnant with twins. And I get to tell the father of my children in court, hey, we're having twins. And we basically got to know each other on paper while he was incarcerated. So from that stint, he winds up being locked up for 10 months. I was locked up for 17 days. And... Like I said, I found I was pregnant with twins. I was working for the Department of Education at that time, and thankfully I had great benefits. And so at six months, I got put on bed rest. I then um, had to come up with a way to continue to take care of my family, so I started in another business. 
I had a very successful janitorial service. I had contracts with the city and my pursuit for success was on once again. The father of my children, he got out of jail and we built a life together. Had a beautiful home in, in Henderson. The janitorial service was going marvelously until one day it wasn't. I hired a consultant to get me corporatized and what he really did was bankrupt me. And so this set me into a spiral and it unfortunately caused my children's father to revert to the only life that he'd known and that's as a street hustler. And because I thought it was the way to prove your love, I thought it was what you did in relationships no matter what, I took to the streets with them. And it wasn't long before I was experimenting with all sorts of things, but it always began with the drink. The drink is what gave me the courage to do the things that I did. My alcoholism took me to places that I never wanted to go with people I never wanted to go with. And I found myself in places I never wanted to be. Most of the time, I didn't even know where I was. I hated waking up, looking at the ceiling, wondering like, whose ceiling is this? Because it's not mine. So I'm, I have a beautiful home in Henderson that I cannot even make it to because alcohol had became my master. I did what it told me to do. And that didn't matter who it hurt in the process. It didn't matter. My whole life had been built to raise my children. I thought that was my purpose in life was to be a mother to those children that I brought into this world. But alcohol said, no, alcohol said, absolutely not. They'll be okay. The family will take care of them. And so I continued to drink myself into oblivion. Poor me. Why did this have to have to happen to me? Poor me, poor me, poor me, pour me another drink. And that's what I did for four years. My alcoholism caused me a great amount of shame. It caused me a great amount of guilt and pain and sorrow. And that was all before noon. So by lunchtime, I had to feed the beast again. And the night brought terror and it brought fear and it brought that sense of guilt that I've lost another day of my life. I would be on the city bus, just riding down the bus, again, not really having anywhere to go, and just looking at people out the window in the cars driving past and wondering where they were going. I would see people pumping their gas and just think, like, I would love to be able to pump gas into a car that I own. I would see people's dry cleaning hanging up in the back of their car. And I was just fascinated of how people can pull off a normal life without drinking. Because I had lost complete concept of just what living a happy, productive, normal life looks like. And I know that's different for everybody, but my definition of it had been completely altered. It had been lost forever. So I go on these, these series of crime sprees, and I'm not a good criminal. Um, and I found myself in jail over and over again, wondering again, what had happened to my life? Where is that young 
ambitious, smart, talented girl? Where was that future political leader or that future teacher or that lawyer? Where had she gone? I couldn't even bear to look myself in the mirror anymore. My sense of judgment was so cloudy that healthcare obviously was not a priority. And two years into the stint, surprise, I'm pregnant again. Now, by all means, of course I wanted to stop drinking. Of course I did. What mother doesn't want to bear a healthy, beautiful child? But I was powerless. I tried with all of my might not to drink, but I just couldn't pull it off. And that baby of mine fought so hard to grow that he was actually born with two complete thumbs on his right hand, bone, fingernail, and all, and two baby toes on his right foot. And I wanted to be his mom. I truly did. But I just couldn't make the red wire connect to the red wire and the blue wire connect to the blue wire of how to pull that off. And so my children's grandmother had to raise them. And she had to drive them back and forth to California to get surgery. And where was I? MIA. So my alcoholism digs a deeper and deeper ditch. And I climb into that hole willingly. Not once did I say, you know, today might be a good day to stop. Or today may be a good day for me to reach out my hand and ask for help. It wasn't until after I had baby number four that God sent me an angel. With baby, excuse me, that was baby number four because the twins count as two. Okay. So <laughs> some of the details escaped me. But with my last son, that's my angel. That's my blessing. Because again, Lord knows that I wanted to stop. Lord knows I wanted to stop. I went into labor and I was only six months pregnant. And the disease was so powerful that I took a drink on my way to the hospital and another in the emergency room bathroom and another walking up the stairs to deliver this child who did not ask to be here. My baby was so sick when he was born that he had bleeding on his brain. His kidneys didn't function properly. He had a heart murmur. His liver didn't function properly. And he was colder than his white film. And while they are rushing my baby to NICU, I snatch the IVs out and I leave the hospital. That's how far down the scales alcohol took me. He was born in February. I didn't even have the courage to call home until December. 
And at this point, I was calling from prison, collect. Thank God they had their grandmother. Thank God for her life. Because I don't know where my children would have been. And when I finally sobered up enough and got the courage enough to call home and find out that he was alive, I just hung up. So after I had him in February, you can only imagine the things that I did to subconsciously kill myself. I could not believe what a wretch I had become. I could not believe the horrors I had inflicted upon innocent children who didn't ask me for that. I couldn't believe the, the disconnection I had put between me and my family. I couldn't believe the separation I caused between me and my children. There were months at a time where they wouldn't hear from me. And I thought, oh, they're so young. They won't remember. They don't understand. But thank God that there is a God and there was someone out there praying for me. And so, again, I find myself in prison and I get introduced to a treatment program there. And that's where the seed of AA was planted in my life. So I stayed in prison for nine months and I did this treatment program and I came out and I was on fire. And they let you out of prison with this little plastic bag. I think I had a check for $24, no ID, nowhere to go. And I'm again on the bus aimlessly up and down the street. And I eventually found myself right back in the same neighborhood where I went to prison from. Because at that point, that's all I knew. And one more time, I'm digging in my pocket for change, digging in my pocket for change. And there was nothing there but a bus pass. And my, the spirit told me, just as plain as I'm talking to you, you better use this bus pass and save your life. Because if not, you're going to die on these streets. And that's what your kids will know of you. And so I got on the bus and I went to court because jail was the only place I had ever been sober. And I said, please help me. And they said, what have you done? Anything you would like to charge me with? Anything. I don't know what I did, but I'm sure you can find something. And they locked me up for nine days. And they did find something. I never registered an address. I didn't have one to register. And so thank God they did, because then I went to an inpatient program. It was uh, West Care for women and children. And that's where I got to rebuild a relationship with my children and with their grandmother. This propelled me into recovery. And I was engaged in meetings. And I went to conventions. I finished the drug court program, even though it took me three years and it's only a one year program because, you know, I think I'm smart. And the drive for success was on yet again. That's the common theme in my life that I keep chasing the things and I get the things. I got a bachelor's degree in human services. I became the operations manager for three of the largest outpatient behavioral health agencies in Las Vegas. I became the director of a nonprofit organization. I have letters of recommendation from the Supreme Court justices of Nevada. I work with parole and probation. I work with the specialty courts. I helped to found a very thriving um, recovery foundation for women. And I had arrived. 
I had arrived. This is the life that I've been waiting for. This is the life that I've been hoping for. I'm married. I have a six-bedroom house. My children are able to go to all of the extracurricular activities that they want. They're in charter schools, and life was good. At this point, I had seven years of sobriety. And I'm excited for all the things that life has to offer. I'm able to travel internationally. I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. My pantry is always stocked. What more can I ask for? But at seven years and three months, I put it all on the bar. I put it all on the bar. And one day, I found myself in the alley drinking again. Insane. How did I get there? There was no divorce. There was no loss of job. There was no illness in the family. The dog didn't die. Not that I had a dog. I'm allergic. You know, no broken fingernails, no wayward children. There was no excuse, no precipitating event. Just one day, there I was, drinking. After all of the horrors I just described to you, after all of the incomprehensible demoralization, after all of the shame, the guilt, the pain, the agony, the desperation, the, the wishing that one day I could just have an inkling of normalcy, I'm doing the very thing that robbed me of everything. Why? Why? Simply because I did not maintain my spiritual condition. I let the life that God in AA gave me get bigger than God in AA. I stopped going to meetings. I stopped having a sponsor. I stopped being sponsorable because nobody could tell me anything. My ego probably couldn't even be contained in this room. I stopped being a service to God's kids. I stopped praying. I stopped meditating because I was king of my universe. What do I need you for? God took my mother away from me. Why do I have to keep praying to this God? I got everything I need now. Thank you. And just like that, it was all gone. Just like that. And slowly, my children backed away from me. And slowly I became unemployable again. Slowly I became prey to misery and depression again. Slowly I became useless again. And for two years, I battered myself terribly. Because just like that, everything that I had worked so hard for, I had given it away. I had given it away. It wasn't... You know, it wasn't wrestled from me. There was no fight in me because I had no mental defense against the first one. None whatsoever. Because I forgot that I am an alcoholic. Being an alcoholic is one of the most important things I know about myself. Because if I don't do what's necessary to keep the disease of alcoholism arrested in me, I don't get to be a mother. I don't get to be a friend. I don't get to be a student. I don't get to show up 
because my alcoholism will take me in a complete opposite direction to where I'm isolated and I can't look you in the eye. There were so many times where my kid's grandmother had them that I will pull up to the house and be sitting in the driveway and I had every intention on knocking on her door and spending some time with my kids. But the disease was calling me much louder than any hopes, wants, desires that I ever had for my life. And so after these two years of being on the bender, my hair was falling out. I had started to hear things. I started to see things. My diet consisted purely of milkshakes because I couldn't even chew anymore. All I could do was swallow. And that's the condition I drove my kids to school in every day. People want to tell me there's not a God. I know for sure there's a God because it's only by his saving grace that I made it to school with those kids every day and didn't kill them, myself, or anybody else. It's only by the love of a higher power that that baby that I told y'all about is perfectly healthy. All of those children are perfectly healthy. Only by the grace of a loving God. And it's only by working the steps of this program that I get to be their mother today. I get to practice the principles that I'm learning in AA and be their mom today. I mean, do I still spaz when we play Monopoly? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm able to bring it back to a healthy, loving place in my own way. The things that the program has taught me is not how to stop drinking, but how not to start. Because once I start, there is no stopping me. I don't want to have to figure out how to stop. I keep coming here so that I can remember how to stay stopped. I understand now that the disease of alcoholism is mental, physical, and spiritual. So I have to do something in all of those areas every single day to keep that disease under arrest. A couple of years ago, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I was hospitalized. I was almost in a coma. And I was having to poke myself 10 times a day. They told me what I needed to do to treat the diabetes. Watch what you eat exercise, increase your water, take the insulin. And I did those things meticulously. But I also learned about food and how diabetes affects me and how insulin affects me. And I did those things for a year and a half and I'm off of insulin. And I was able to do that because I applied the same diligence, the same principles of the program to that situation in my life. And so by understanding that and knowing that that's how I treat that disease, why would I give any less effort to my disease of alcoholism? So to treat my mind, it goes through the first 164 pages of the big book with the sponsor who's armed with some facts about herself. To treat my body, I bring it into conventions and meetings for the unity piece and for my spirit. I'm of service. I am of service as much as possible because by doing all three parts of the program, by working all sides of that triangle, I know that one day I can be a whole person no longer dominated by the sick emotions, no longer dominated by the sickness of my mind 
and definitely not by the physical allergy that I have. That program of Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a sense of self-respect. No longer am I afraid to make connections with others. I have seen how the the promises come true, not only in my life, but in the life of people amongst me. Through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have built some of the best relationships with women that I have ever had in my life. Those relationships help nurture me through. When I was about a year and a half sober, my sister, she died. She lost her battle to cancer. And had I been drinking, I would not be able to receive that call. I had the pleasure. I got to go to Chicago and pack my sister's entire life. That was my rock. She was my person. And I thought for sure that that would give me the excuse to drink. That was my one reservation. If my sister died, all bets are off. Everybody would understand. But because I was able to connect with you all on Zoom, I got through one of the worst situations of my life and did not take a drink. That's one of the promises of this program. I never have to drink again, even if I want to. I never have to feel the way that I felt again. If I'm willing to take some, a few simple suggestions, do some very simple actions, I never have to drink again. And that absolutely thrills me. Today, I get to show up and be a productive member of society. Have I risen to the ranks that I once had? No. And do I want to? Absolutely not. Because today, what I want is what God wants for me. So how I work my program is God first and everything else. When I put God first, he goes before me and tells me exactly what I need to do when I need to do it, and how I need to do it, and who I need to do it with. No longer do I have to try to be the director arranging the lights and all the characters just so. No longer do I have to be filled with anxiety and worry and fear. No longer do I have to be dominated by those sick emotions. I have a sense of peace that is indescribable. That sense of ease and comfort that I used to get from drinking, now I get it through prayer and meditations. Like, what a concept. What a concept. And I didn't believe that it could be just that simple. I thought all the slogans and the cliches and the little clicks I see forming in AA, like, you all needed that. I'm okay. I just need you all to help me figure out how to stop drinking. And I can figure out the rest. And boy, was I wrong. Thank God that I was wrong. Because what I've received in AA is is far more than I could have ever hoped, dreamed, or imagined. If I had written down a list of things that I wanted when I got here, I would have sold myself way short. Because what I've received already in one day, 10 months, and two years is a life beyond my wildest dreams. I have the opportunity now to go back for my master's degree, which I'm still pitter-pattering about because it's difficult. I have the opportunity to to work in a mental health facility again, helping people that I know are struggling. I have the opportunity to work with one of my best friends on the planet, and we're starting a treatment center in Las Vegas because Lord knows those are needed. And I get to have a relationship with my children. My father calls and wishes me happy birthday. People check on me when I go missing for a couple of days, let alone uh, 
you know, a couple of months like it used to be. And this weekend, I received even another gift, another blessing of being sober. I was awarded a contract this weekend that makes me officially a business owner. Like, I really can't imagine where my life would be without Alcoholics Anonymous, nor do I want to waste a moment thinking about it. Being able to be a mom to those boys sitting back there, being able to be a friend, if that's all that Alcoholics Anonymous ever gives me, I've been paid a hundredfold. That's way more than enough. To be asked to come and share a part of my life with you all, that's just another testament. That's just another testament to what God can do if we allow him and be willing vessels. I just want to close my share with this. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace that where there is hatred, I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is error, I bring truth. That that where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. And that where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.